let's uh, get into the word for today. We are continuing our um, series we started last week on the Gospel of John. And today our passage is from John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51. I will read it out and you can follow along on the screen. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who send us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. What, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, especially uh, the beautiful gospel of John that lays bare a, uh, a tremendous witness to the majesty of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we go through this book, we pray, O Lord, that you'll grant us the wisdom to learn from it and to apply it 
in our lives and to grow more in love and more in knowledge of your son. So we pray that you'll, your spirit will guide us and guide us. In Jesus' mighty name we ask, amen. So like I said, um, this is just the second session in our series on the Gospel of John. And we have done the Gospel of John before. I'm sure many of you are familiar uh, with John's Gospel, right? John 3.16 is fundamentally the foundation, you could say, of Christian missions or the Christian gospel sharing. And one of the things about John's gospel is that it's unique compared to the other three gospels. The other three gospels have a name. It's called the, it's the synoptic gospels, but John's gospel stands alone in a sense because it's so uniquely focused on testifying to the majesty of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of that testimony is what we read towards the end of John in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in a sense, the Gospel of John is really oriented to preaching the Gospel. You know, all the apostles in the early church were called the evangelists. So the the four Gospel writers, you could say. But the only one whom we usually call the evangelist is John, right? All of them were called evangelists. Matthew the evangelist, Mark the evangelist, Luke the evangelist. But such is the influence of John's gospel on evangelism that the only one who we tend to call the evangelist is John. And his concern is to testify to Jesus accurately and effectively so as to spread the gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he does this through the recorded words of others and Jesus himself. You know, one of the things about John's gospel is that though we associate Mark's gospel with history, because he he puts a lot of attention on historical details, John is not lacking when it comes to historical details. For example, in this passage, he says, um, the two disciples went with Jesus around the 10th hour, which is 4 p.m. Right, so he gives you the detail just so that you know that he didn't make this up in his head, like this event actually happened. But his primary concern is not history, but rather to testify to the majesty of Jesus Christ. But when you read John's gospel, you realize that it's not just a testimony about Jesus, but it also gives us a template as to how to testify about Jesus to others. Especially in the passage that we just read, you can see the outline of an evangelistic method. You know, often as Christians, especially those Christians who are concerned about the Great Commission, we, we are concerned with the how and what and why to do evangelism and how to do it right. And it's no surprise that the evangelist, John, his gospel can provide us some pointers in that regard. So let me take you through this passage and look at it in terms of how to do evangelism. So we'll look at it in three, three points. The first one is that evangelism requires an honest testimony about yourself. Secondly, evangelism means pointing people, people away from yourself and towards Jesus. And lastly, Evangelism means trusting that only Jesus and not you 
has the answers to people's questions. So evangelism requires honest testimony about yourself. It means pointing people away from yourself and towards Jesus, and it means trusting that only Jesus and not you has the answers to people's questions. So when we talk about honest self-testimony, let's look at the first verse of this passage, 19 to 20 of John chapter one. It says, and this is the testimony of John, the Baptist. When the Jews and priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now we know that John the Baptist created quite a scene in, in Palestine of that day. He drew people to himself with this radical message of repentance. And more than that, he claimed a certain authority for himself because baptism was not unknown to Jews. But they did baptism as a means of cleansing oneself. So all baptism in Jewish culture was self-administered. So one would get into the waters, uh, dip oneself and come out. But John baptized others, thereby he claimed that he had some authority in order not to baptize himself, but to baptize others for the repentance of their sins. So these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem have sent some investigators to check him out and ask him a few questions. And the first question they asked him, because of what he was doing and the message that he was preaching and the authority that he was claiming for himself, the first question which is implied here is, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah who is prophesied in our scriptures? Because everything you are doing points to the fact that you believe that you are a messianic figure. And you have to realize, or we have to realize, that they, they had seen quite a few messiahs uh, in their time. Because people had this expectation, they had a thirst for deliverance from the Roman Empire, and they wanted to get back to being, you know, to enjoy the privileges of being the people of God. And, and so there were a lot of people who took advantage of that, and, 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 and they had some influence, and they portrayed themselves as someone they were not. And all of these messiahs eventually died or were killed and you know, all of that ended in disappointment. So they're assuming that John the Baptist is just one more in the line of these uh, fake messiahs. But the Baptist's answer is not like the others who came before him who thought themselves to be more than what they were. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. Even in his denial, he was forceful. That's why the, it, it says it twice. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed that I am not the Christ. And in a sense, he's saying that uh, John, the writer, is saying that the Baptist confessed freely, not just denying, but saying I am not the one, with a force of intent so that he could lay the groundwork for pointing them to the true Messiah. So they keep pressing. They keep asking him, maybe you're Elijah. Come back as God promised in the Old Testament. In the, book of, uh, in, the, in the prophetic book of Malachi, there's a promise that Elijah would come back to restore God's people in the last days. And so John the Baptist looks like Elijah. You know, in his appearance and in the way he carries himself and in his radical message of repentance. So they asked him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. 
Then they ask him, maybe you're a prophet. Like Moses in Deuteronomy, one of the promises in Deuteronomy is that, again, in the last days, another prophet like Moses would rise up who would reveal the word of God at the end of days. And maybe you are that person. And he says, no. So he had the opportunity to be identified as one of the three greatest figures of Jewish expectation. And he said no to all of them. So finally they say, hey, we cannot go back without an answer to our leaders. They are shaken and they are disturbed by what you're doing and by what authority you're baptizing people. So who are you? And that leads into his self-confession. He says, I've been sent to prepare the way for the Lord. I am the voice crying in the wilderness, telling everyone the time has come to see the true Messiah. It's not me, I'm just the messenger, the herald of the true king who is about to come. And what the writer wants us to know about John the Baptist is that he knew who he was. He knew what his role was, what his limitations were. His ministry existed and was conducted within the constraints of who he was and what he was called to do. And another way to look at it is that there's an utter lack of pride in his ministry. Apart from the joy he takes in seeing God's purposes being accomplished. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about how if you are proud, you cannot know God because you're too busy looking down on others to look up to God. And that was not John the Baptist. That was not any of the apostles or evangelists we see in the New Testament. They had an honest self-assessment of themselves that showcased their limitations being used fruitfully for God. Now, one such example that we commonly know, the Apostle Paul, who freely admits in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 6, he says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. He's saying, you know what, I'm not a great speaker. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you go back home and read it, he acknowledges that, that you know, his opponents made fun of him because in reality, he, was a very, he had a very weak uh, presence or personality. So he, he was a great letter writer, but he had a very weak physical presence. And that is not just false humility, but the reality that apart from God, he really did not have much to boast about in his ministry. Paul goes to the extent of identifying, as we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited or keep me from becoming proud because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation that God gave to me, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. He's saying, I have a physical ailment that prevents me from getting proud in my ministry. And that's a blessing of God. But your humility should not just come from your limitations. It shouldn't just be like self-deprecation, like I'm the worst person possible, right? There's a, there's a sense of humility that leads us to compete in putting yourself down. But your humility should come from your experience of Christ. You know, Lewis, again, in, uh, in Mere Christianity, he makes the point that pride between people comes really because of comparison and competition. The pleasure of being above the rest is what pride is. 
Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And in knowing and experiencing the greatness of Christ, you realize that you can't compete with him or compare with him. And that should completely exhaust any hint of pride you can take in your own talents or work or ministry or testimony. That's why Paul, again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 15 says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's not saying like I'm literally the worst sinner that ever was in the world. He's saying compared to the majesty of Jesus Christ, I am the exemplification of the worst sinner you will see. And here in this passage in John's gospel, you see the Baptist's humility, his honesty about himself comes from his evaluation of Jesus Christ. So in, in verse 29 and 30 of John chapter one, he says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What he's saying is that my baptism accomplishes repentance and an external cleansing of sin but it has no permanent effect. Here is the Lamb of God who will take away once and for all the sin of the world. Here is someone who will not baptize with water but baptize with the Holy Spirit. Here is someone who ranks before, above me because he existed before me. I was born in a time and a place to uh, Zechariah and Elsa, but there was a time when I, John the Baptist, was not. But here is he who is eternal and whose majesty and capabilities I cannot even comprehend, let, to, let alone aspire to be. You know, one of the crazy things in this passage is if you read Mark's gospel, and it's not just in Mark, but in other gospels as well, but in Mark's gospel, chapter 9 and verse 13, they asked Jesus about his evaluation of John the Baptist. And this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's saying to the question, was this Elijah? Jesus said, yes, this is Elijah. What did John say? He said, no. Even the significance that Jesus assigned to his ministry he did not ascribe to himself. And his humility is, is, is very movingly captured in his response to the question, why was he baptizing? In verse 26 and 27 of John chapter one, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You know, in Jewish culture, a student would do everything for a teacher except untie his shoes. Because the only person who would do everything, including untying the shoes of someone, was a slave. So he's saying, I'm not even a student. I'm not even a slave. I'm not even worthy to call him master, not just teacher, but master. So John the Baptist was honest in his testimony of himself, of his role and of his limitations. 
compared to the majesty of the testimony of Christ. And that enabled him to preach without hesitation or the pressure of his own self-identity or self-worth or self-evaluation. It enabled him to truly expend himself in the service of his master. So once we have a sober evaluation of ourselves compared to Christ, then we are able to point people away from ourselves to Christ. When you say that I have nothing to offer you, then you are able to point people towards Jesus. Because the goal of humility is not to be humble. The goal of humility in a Christian's life is to take the attention that should have been focused on you and redirect it away to the sender of the gospel who is Jesus Christ. Our humility must be in service of pointing people in the direction of the majesty of Jesus Christ. So John's humility was countered by his proclamation. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Like I'm not the one who you're looking for. I do not have the answers you're seeking for. I cannot meet your expectations. But here is the one who can. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your sins. And he points people towards Christ because he has a personal experience of Jesus. And this is John's testimony in uh, the Baptist testimony in verse 32 and 32, 34 of the same chapter. He says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's saying, I personally bear witness that this is the Son of God. This is the one who has the power to baptize you with the Spirit, to take away your sins. But that is not just my expectation, but it is my reality. It is my experience. All fruitful gospel proclamation has to begin in personal testimony, born in the personal experience of Jesus Christ. So it is with John, so it is with all the apostles, so it is with Paul who met Christ on the road to Damascus and that encounter changed his life so completely that he exhausted his life taking the gospel to the Gentiles without fear of abuse and suffering and harassment and death. Personal experience. You know, John Wesley, who was the founder of what we now call Methodism along with, and who along with his brother Charles Wesley have given us a lot of hymns. He says about a, there was an evening church service where he was hearing Luther's, Martin Luther's uh, pref preface or introduction to the epistle to uh, the Romans. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. Personal experience is what leads to fruitful gospel proclamation. That's what enables these great evangelists to point people away from themselves, away from their talents, their charisma, 
towards the majesty of Christ. It's unfortunate that in today's Christian world, people are more attracted to the preacher, to the leader, than they are to the one they are preaching about. And that is borne out, the expectation that you point people away towards Christ is borne out by what happens to John's ministry or his um, capacity once Jesus comes on the scene. Verse 35 to 37 of chapter one, he says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God, as he always says. And what happens? The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So the next day, John took an attendance Minus two. Two people left him. You'll see that in this passage, Jesus does not call any of the disciples in this passage. He does not call any of the disciples in this passage, but they're all brought to him as a result of John's witness. He said, behold, here is the one you must follow, and his disciples obeyed. And his disciples obeyed him. They did not abandon him, but they rather obeyed his witness in following the master that he was pointing towards. All of his preaching led his disciples to the point to make the decision that this is the time to leave the one we have followed for so long and instead follow the one that he is pointing towards. In chapter 3 of John's gospel, verse 28 to 30. It, talks, it says this about John the Baptist. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Indeed, John was decreasing. But to him, that is the whole point of his ministry. Not to accumulate followers for himself, but to accumulate disciples for Christ. You know, there's a passage in Philippians chapter 1, you can go home and read it in verse 15 to 18, where Paul says, you know, I recognize that some people want to compete with me. They want to usurp whatever fame that I have, and so they preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and then there are others who do it out of goodwill. In verse 17 of that passage, he says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're doing it for some ulterior motive. They're saying, ha ha, you're in prison, Look, we can go about preaching the gospel. And then what does he say? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Not in the exaltation of oneself, or not in the humiliation, but rather the rejoicing comes from the fact that Christ is being exalted. What is the goal? Not that I will be exalted, but Christ will be proclaimed and exalted. And that is my joy, and that means that if it is not going to come through me but through someone else, I have no problems with that. If 
I have not brought anyone to Christ, but a sister of mine or a brother of mine has brought multiple people. I have no problem with that. I rejoice. I encourage them. I pray for them. What is the goal? You know, the amazing thing to note in this passage of John's Gospel is the medium by which people are drawn to Jesus. John tells his disciples, two of them, including Andrew, follow Jesus, who then goes and tells his brother Simon Peter. And in verse 43, though the translation is a little ambiguous there, it is more likely that Andrew then calls Philip from Galilee, even though it seems like it's Jesus who calls Philip. In keeping with the tenor of the passage and the ambiguity of the grammar, it is more likely that Andrew calls Philip from Galilee. He knew Philip. So he calls him. And then Philip then goes and calls uh, Nathaniel. And then as we progress through John's gospel, and as you read in the other gospels, we see Jesus calling out his disciples. But here, in this passage, you see a pattern for Christian evangelism has already been set. Basically, John the Baptist is, as a commentator says, the first in a long line of people who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. You know, a foundational principle of the expansion of Christ's kingdom is the fact that new followers of Jesus Christ bear witness to him, to others, who in turn become disciples and continue that process. We know Peter and Paul preached to thousands, and so do many today in many venues and through many mediums, and that's great. But it should not reduce our sensitivity to the fact that the foundation of Christian evangelism is the testimony of one friend to another, brother to brother, sister to sister, father to son, and so on. Or to put it another way, Christianity is not a faith that is very catered towards advertising with like Super Bowl, you know, like ads that run during the Super Bowl or something like that. It's a word of mouth faith. And that is one of the purposes of John's gospel, to provide the witness for what is the main means by which the gospel spreads so that you may believe and in doing so, you may go talk to someone else. People who are invested in other people, who have relationships with other people, and who themselves having discovered the beauty of Jesus cannot help but tell their friends of him and bring them over to the gospel. That's the foundation of, of Christian evangelism. So you need a honest self-testimony. You need to use that honesty, that humility, to point people away from yourselves and towards Christ. And the last aspect of fruitful evangelism is recognizing that you don't have the answers. Only Jesus has all the answers. You will never have all the answers to people's questions and their seeking. You know, often we are at a loss in how to respond to the needs of people and their inquiries about Jesus and the gospel. And we worry ourselves a lot about, oh, I am never prepared, I am never uh, fully knowledgeable, or, or I have never heard this question before. 
But one of the main points in John's gospel is how often people are speechless, but Jesus has the answer to every question. John's gospel is an invitation to go to Jesus. Go and see this person for yourself, is his message. And Jesus echoes this in this passage. He says, come and see to Andrew and the other disciple. He says, follow me to Philip. And even Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see what I have found. At some point in our sharing of the gospel, maybe we come to the end of our wits, we come to a loss as to how to answer all these questions. Maybe we don't know how to proceed in this relationship with that person. There has to be a point at which we have to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I know someone who has. Come and see. Point them towards Jesus, point them towards his words that we have in scripture. Pray for them and then let them see for themselves. You are not responsible for the A to Z of salvation. And in this passage, you can see the various ways in which Jesus and Jesus alone can satisfy the seeking of those who are willing to examine his claims. See, as we read, Andrew and the other disciple, and just as a piece of information, the other disciple is most probably the gospel writer John himself, they were influenced or they were followers of John the Baptist, but they were influenced by him to follow Jesus. But they had so many questions. Because clearly John the Baptist did not know everything there was about the gospel, about how salvation was going to be accomplished and so forth. So they had so many questions. So if you read verse 37 to 39 and again of chapter one, it says they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He asked them, what do you want? What is your question? Maybe they're, they're a little confounded. Maybe they don't know where to start. They said, well, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. So they came and saw where you're staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour from, from 4 p.m. They asked him, the best they could come up with was what is your address? Can we meet you and talk to you there? He says, come and see. Here's the invitation that they were seeking, an opportunity for intimacy with the Son of God. And he's not stingy with his invitation. And from 4 p.m. till evening, they stayed with him, talking and sharing his life. Then Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus says this about Simon in verse 42. He says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. You know, Cephas and Peter, they both mean the same thing. It means rock. If you know the trajectory of Peter's life and how he will become one of the founding members of the church, and Jesus says, and you, know, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build this church, you can appreciate the significance of Jesus renaming him the rock, not the rock. Renaming him Peter. 
He's the one. Jesus is the one who knows you completely and who can give your life meaning and purpose. And he's the one who's able to call you to a new identity. Simon becomes Peter. John the Baptist couldn't do that. No preacher, no evangelist can do that. No one can give your life purpose. Don't believe that. Apart from Jesus Christ. And when people encounter him, that's where they find purpose. Then in verse 45 to 46, we come to the most interesting of the initial converts. This is Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found of him, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now Nathaniel is someone who we would call a skeptic. Right? He knows his stuff. He's knowledgeable. He knows that the Messiah should come out of Bethlehem. He should come from the town of David. And most importantly, he knows that nothing of significance has ever come out of Nazareth. So he's a skeptic. And so Philip, all he can say is, come and see. You know, we have skeptics today. I would caution you to recognize there are two types of skeptics. There's the honest skeptic who wants to be convinced, but who is open. And then there's a skeptic who is just a skeptic because it's cool to be a skeptic. It's cool to not trust any authority. It's cool to go against the grain. This is the skeptic of whom G.K. Chesterton once said, the type of person who says simultaneously that you shouldn't call people animals and then also says people are animals. They just oppose everything. But then there's the honest skeptic, the one who wants to be convinced, who's open to being convinced. And Jesus, when he sees Nathanael coming toward him in verse 47, he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus' evaluation of him is, here's an Israelite. He's skeptical, but he's honest. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He's not seeking to deceive you, but he's actually seeking to find. That is his personality. He's open to following someone, but he wants to be convinced. And so Nathaniel is like, yeah, that's me. How do you know me? And then Jesus in John's uh, Gospel, chapter 1, verse 48 to 49, he says, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under that fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel is floored. He answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the son of David. You are the king of Israel. You know, Jesus said, my knowledge is not just physical or intellectual knowledge, but it is supernatural. I know where you were, what you were doing, even before you came into my presence. 
even before Philip called you. And all of Nathaniel's skepticism, his honest inquiry, his seeking, has led to this moment in his life where all of his doubts are melted and washed away by the one who knows all things and all people. He, he knows, here is the man. Here is the Messiah who's worth giving up my skepticism, my reluctance to be part of a crowd. Here is where all of that comes to an end. So then Nathaniel says in verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the son of David. You are the king of Israel. You are the one who will sit on the throne of David and rule over Israel. But you see, his confession is incomplete because his evaluation of Jesus is incomplete. In all of his skepticism, his mind has not been opened to the possibilities. So Jesus says in verse 50 and verse 51, Jesus answered him because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You are impressed. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, you got, you, you know, not to make light of it, you got amazed by a magic trick, so to speak. But I promise you, you will see more amazing things that will render this insignificant by comparison. And he uses the vision in Genesis chapter 28 of Jacob's ladder, we, you know, when Jacob is running away from Esau on his way to Laban, he sees a dream in Bethel when, he, when he's sleeping of, of heaven being open and a ladder coming down to earth where he's sleeping and angels descending and ascending on the ladder. So he got a glimpse of heaven. And that's why he names that place Bethel, the place where God is. But that is a vision, a dream. And Jesus says, what does he say? He says the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He said, your forefather got a vision, got a glimpse of heaven. He says, I am the ladder to heaven. I will open up heaven to you. And you will see angels coming and going upon me because I am the door, the entrance the passage, the pathway between heaven and earth. And if you think I'm just the son of God in terms of being the king of Israel, you should know and you will see that I'm also the son of man as prophesied in Daniel. I'm here not just to rule over Israel, but I'm the son of man who rules over everything and everyone at the end of days. John the Baptist said, at the baptism of Jesus, heaven was opened. And so Jesus is saying to Nathanael, heaven is opened. You will see great signs being performed. You will see great prophecies being fulfilled. You will see many Jews and Gentiles come to me. And you will see the Son of Man lifted up on the cross to die for your sin and then be buried and to rise again on the third day and to go into heaven to prepare a place for you so that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. What Jesus promises Nathaniel is not just a vision of the future but that heaven itself will be opened up to him. 
that the matters of heaven will be revealed to him and that when his life is over, like Stephen, when he looks up, he will see his master standing at the door of heaven, waiting to welcome him into the mansion where he has prepared him a room. See, Nathaniel was seeking and his seeking came to an end by the merest hint of the majesty of Jesus Christ. But Jesus was not satisfied meeting his expectations. Jesus wanted to surpass his expectations. He wanted to blow his mind. We all ask, how do we evangelize? How can I be confident that I'm capable? I don't have all the answers or even sometimes any answer to what people ask. They are so much more informed. You find people walking on the street talking about philosophy and, and politics and history and you know, uh, comparative religion. How do I witness in a world where I am probably underprepared, not capable, don't have all the tools? And this is John's template. He says, be honest about yourself. Be honest about your role, your capabilities. But then use that honesty to point people away from you towards Jesus. And do not worry because he's the one who has the answers. He's the one who can meet and surpass the expectations of people who can blow their minds. Not you, not me. He must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you a lot for this time for enabling us to find so much grace and joy in your word, but also wisdom that teaches us how to conduct ourselves uh, in this world by living for you. We recognize a lot that, that uh, a lot of our life, a lot we spend in fear of uh, bearing witness to you, but we realize a lot that sometimes that fear comes from the fact that we are proud, we have pride in ourselves, in how we are perceived, in how we are looked upon. We have jealousy about others and we are competing, but we realize here a lot that in that verse, as John writes, we must decrease in every way in order that you must increase. So give us a lot the, the soberness of mind to be honest about ourselves, to be honest about our capabilities, knowing that, that, is, that in our weakness you will be strengthened and you will, you will strengthen us and you will be glorified. So like John and, and Paul and all the other great evangelists who have gone before us, we pray, O oh Lord, that we are not afraid of our limitations, but rather we can be honest about them so that we can keep them up to you for you to use so that we can be honest about ourselves to other people. We can tell them not to put their expectations in ourselves, but rather point them to Christ. And we recognize a lot that only you are the one who is able to bring people into heaven. You are the one who has all the answers. Your word is, is where people will find answers and not, not us. So we ask a lot that you'll have the courage to do that, to, to direct people to you and to your word, and to fully believe a lot that you are more than capable of answering and meeting every expectation. So we ask a lot for your grace and your mercy amongst us as a community and as individuals as we go out into this world which you came to save. We pray that you guide us and guide us and that your spirit will be with us. 
In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.